Are we good? I see a thumbs up. Okay. If you can turn with me to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. And I'm sorry, I didn't look up where in the Pew Bibles what page that was. If somebody wants to shout it out, they can. But um, Psalm 102. And I definitely encourage you to turn there if you can at all or use your device to, uh, to look it up online. Because we're going to be looking at, at it very closely, very carefully. And it will be very, very helpful for you to have that in front of you. There's also an outline. Uh, if you picked one up on the way in, if you didn't, you can jump out of your seat and or we can get some help. I think Paul's got some. If anybody needs an outline just to help you follow along where we are, you can raise your hand. Maybe Paul will give you an outline. Looks like we're good. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Psalm 102. So I've been uh, meditating on this psalm for some, some time, uh, maybe maybe too much time. Just, uh, my thoughts went in all kinds of different, different directions. I'm just so amazed by all that's in this, this psalm. And uh, just another plug for our 9.30 Sunday meetings. We've been going through psalms, and they've been led by different people um, throughout the last couple of years. And it's just been amazing to dive deeply into these psalms. Um, I think I used to have a, an impression of these psalms as not being kind of meaty or, <laughs> or, or meaningful even, um, when I, especially when I was younger. Um, but now the, m- the more I uh, read them and meditate on them and, and reflect on how they connect to all of Scripture, they have, they're just become almost a, a turning point for all of Scripture because they, they, re- they you can see references to the, the Hebrew Scriptures and that point back and then references that point ahead to the, to the New Testament. Uh, just amazing what God has put in his word for us. So Psalm 102. Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, abide forever and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come 
that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From the heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we do stand in awe of your word. We stand in awe of your power that we've just read of. We stand in awe of the rescue that you've provided that this psalm tells us about. I just pray that you would uh, help us now to focus on your words, to understand what's being said and how it applies to us uh, even today in just amazing ways. And I just pray that your spirit would enable to do that, us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So is there sorrow in your heart this morning? Are you grieving? Are you carrying a burden? Perhaps more than a few. Are you weary? Are you broken? Are you in distress? Have you reason to despair? The author of Psalm 102 is right there with you. He's crying out from the depths of a very dark place. But all is not black. The psalmist is convinced. He is convinced that the Lord's power to rescue runs far deeper than the depths of his distress. In fact, he's so convinced that at what I would say is the apex, the key verse of this psalm, that's verse 18, he writes, This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The psalmist knows that though he is weak, that though he feels overwhelmed, that though his life is slipping away, God is going to do something so wonderful that people who are not even born yet will look back at what he's written, see what the Lord has done, and they will praise and worship him. They will know as well as he does that the Lord's power to rescue runs far deeper than the depths of his distress. That would be the message of Psalm 102 in a nutshell. The Lord's power to rescue runs far deeper than the depths of our distress. That message is true. It's a solid take-home, if you will, from the psalm. But what does that message really mean? Can we really just insert ourselves into the psalm everywhere it says me, my, and I, like I just did? Can we say the Lord's power to rescue runs far deeper than the depths of our distress and not just the psalmist's distress? Can we say that or not? Come to think of it, what's really going on here? What, after all, is the psalmist's distress? What burden is he laboring under? What is his affliction? Is this just sort of overly dramatic poetry? And what is this great vision of rescue that he writes of, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord? And how can he, crying out from what seems to be the impending end of his own life, be so confident 
that God will do anything that matters to him at all, let alone to the generation to come. There is really a lot more to this psalm than meets the eye at first reading. To begin, we're going to look carefully at what it says, and then we'll be in a better position to look at what it means. We can start by identifying three dominant ideas. I'm going to call them motifs. There are three motifs around which this psalm is organized. And those three motifs are pit, promise, and power. Pit, promise, and power. What do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked. The psalmist's pit. First, by pit, I'm referring to the psalmist's distress, his pit of despair, if you will. This psalm that we just read comes with a preamble. It says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. It tells us right up front the psalmist is afflicted. His affliction is so great that he is faint. Literally, he is feeble. It's like he's shell-shocked, staggered, stooped over, so much so that his soul is pouring out. His life is being drained away. This pit of affliction is his focus for the first 11 verses. It crops up again also verses 14, 23, and the first part of 24. And that's essentially half of the psalm. Half of the psalm is describing the pit. And the imagery is vivid. You can almost feel the despair. We can hear it. He's crying out for help in verse 1. He's groaning loudly in verse 5. He's weeping in verse 9. We can see it. He's like a bird isolated in the wilderness, verse 6. Like a lonely bird atop a house, in verse 7. You can, if you will, almost smell his life going up in smoke. It says his bones are burned black. His days are, are, are going up, literally, in smoke. He's withering like dry grass. And he's burned up and he's burned out. And we can feel in our souls the depths of his distress. He's grief-stricken. He's so beside himself he forgets to eat, verse 4. He's wasting away, verse 5. He's poured ashes of mourning, I don't know if you caught that, on his head, so that when he does eat, he's eating the ashes that are falling up from his head. And he's drinking the tears that he can't hold back from falling into his cup as he drinks, in verse 9. He feels abandoned, he's forsaken and lonely, verses 6 and 7. In verse 8, he's being cursed by people. And in verse 10, he's being cursed and cast away by God. This truly is, as he says in verse 2, the day of his distress. He's weak, verse 23. It seems as if his, as his, if his life is coming to an end, verse 24. This is how the psalmist describes his pit. The second motif is the Lord's promise. Why is the psalmist in this pit? What's the reason for this affliction? The answer to that has layers, and we're, we'll get to those layers in a few minutes. But first, we see that there is, is an answer to the pit, and the psalmist knows it well. Actually, there are two answers to the pit. There's the Lord's promise and the Lord's power. First, there's the Lord's promise. This is the second motif of the psalm. It starts in verse 13 and carries through to verse 22 and closes out the psalm in verse 28. That the psalmist has a promise in mind is clear for at least three, uh, sorry, four reasons. He speaks in the future tense. He speaks in the past tense. He uses the language of former prophecy that points to a famous promise. And he speaks of an appointed time. 
four reasons we know he's got a promise in mind. The psalmist, first of all, speaks in the future tense. He makes ample use of that future tense. For example, in verse 13, he writes, you, Lord, will, right? Future tense, you will arise and have compassion. And in 15, he says, the nations will fear. And in 28, he says, the children will continue and their descendants will be established. As I've already mentioned, the psalmist is so convinced of what the future holds that in verse 18, he writes in that this psalm is written for a future generation, a people not yet born, so that when these future events do come to pass, they will know and understand that it was the Lord who accomplished them. They will know and understand, and they will praise him. So the psalmist is looking into the future and telling what will happen, what the Lord will do. How can he do that? How can a mere man tell with any confidence what will happen, what will happen in the future, what the, let alone what the Lord will do? psalmist is speaking of future of the future with confidence only because by inspiration of the holy spirit he already knows what the lord has promised his use of the future tense tells us that he has god's promise in mind but the psalmist also uses the past tense technically and there is a grammar black belt sitting in the front row here technically speaking it's not the past tense it's the perfect tense to be grammatically correct the perfect tense if you remember grammar, which I don't very well, perfect tense is where you say, I have, or he, she has done this or that in order to convey the meaning that this or that was done in the past and was brought to completion. For example, in for verse 16, the psalmist writes, the Lord has built up Zion. The Lord has appeared in glory. And in verse 17, it says, the Lord has regarded the prayer of the destitute and he has not despised their prayer. And again, in verse 19, the, the word looked, the Lord looked and gazed from heaven to hear the prisoners groaning and set them free from death. In Hebrew, those are also in the perfect tense. He uses the perfect tense, but the context shows he's pointing to future events. So it's a little bit confusing. For example, in verse 16, when he says, the Lord has built up Zion and the Lord has appeared in glory, He's referencing the future time that he's envisioned, both in verses 13 and 15, where he says the Lord will have compassion and be gracious, and the nations and all the king, kings of earth will fear the name and glory of the Lord. These are all things that will happen, but the psalmist is speaking of them in verses 16 and 17 as if they have already occurred, as if it's already done. He does it again in verses 19 and 20 when he says the Lord looked and gazed from heaven. Like I said, he uses the perfect tense there but he's pointing to a future event, namely setting the prisoner free. In fact, some of your translations, you might be getting confused, but some of your translations actually change the tense. They use will instead of has in verses 16, 17, and 19 because it's understood that the psalmist is speaking of the future. Both the King James Version and the New International Version do this, and maybe some of you have those versions in front of you right now. But in Hebrew, the original Hebrew, it's actually the perfect tense. Now, this speaking of and seeing the future as already accomplished is an example of what's been called the prophetic perfect tense. The prophet uses the perfect tense, saying that, event, that an event has already happened because that event is so certain to occur in his mind. It's, he's so certain of the future that he speaks of it as having already occurred. How is the psalmist, again, so certain of the future? that he uses the perfect tense, the prophetic perfect tense. It's because he knows the promises the Lord has made, and he knows what the Lord 
that what the Lord has promised, he will accomplish. So we know that the psalmist has the Lord's promises in view because he speaks in the future tense, because he speaks in the perfect tense. We also know that the, uh, uh, the psalmist has the Lord's promises in view because the psalmist alludes to the Lord's past promises in, in the language that he chooses. In particular, in verses 19 and 20, it says, it says, He looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death. These words echo Moses' words. They should maybe sound familiar if you're familiar with the book of Exodus. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, Moses writes that the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Here we read that God saw the sons of Israel and took notice, and he heard their groaning. It parallels very closely what it says in Psalm 102, that he looked down from his holy height, he gazed upon the earth, and he heard the groaning of the prisoner. That calling to mind of the plight of Israel in Egypt and God's having seen and heard and ultimately having delivered them should immediately recall to mind that none of these things took the Lord by surprise. Some 500 years before Moses, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's Genesis 15, 13, and 14. And the setting here is that the Lord is putting his seal on his covenant with Abraham. If you remember when the fire from God passed between Abraham's sacrifice, and God was confirming that he was binding himself to this promise that he's making Abraham, a promise that would involve Abraham's, uh, Abram at that time, Abram's descendants, the Israelites, being cast into a pit of slavery, a slavery that would end with judgment falling upon their oppressors, their rescue, and their being blessed. So the psalmist's language is taking us right back to this ancient promise, God's covenant. And that covenant came with a timetable. Did you catch it? After 400 years, God would bring them out of their affliction. And that's exactly what he did. And the psalmist knows it well. And so and this brings us to the final indicator that the psalmist has a promise in view. He speaks of an appointed time in verse 13. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Verse 13 speaks with confidence that the Lord will answer the psalmist's cry. It is time, he says. The appointed time has come. Though he doesn't tell us with specificity what that time is, he is looking into the future, as we've said, and he's confident that God will arise. He's confident that a time will come, and that's because he's confident there's an appointed time. And why is he so, he's so confident? We're not told with great specificity, but we can make an educated guess, and we'll also get to that in a few minutes. But for now, the important point is that the psalmist indeed has a promise in view. God has made a promise, just like God promised Abram some 200 years before Israel even was enslaved, that 400 years after uh, he would deliver them from slavery, he would rescue them. And the psalmist is confident that the time for his own rescue, a, a new rescue for Israel, has arrived, and he's resting on that promise. 
So he speaks in the future tense. He speaks in the past tense. He uses words that take us back to one of great, God's great promises in Scripture. And he claims there is an appointed time that will come. And that's how we know he's speaking about a promise. But what's the content of that promise? Looking at the text, we can glean quite readily the general features of the promise. Verses 19 and 20 say that the Lord will see the affliction and hear the suffering. As we talked about him seeing the affliction of Israel in bondage. Verse 17 says he will answer the prayers of the afflicted. So he's going to see and hear the afflicted's suffering and their prayers. He's going to answer the prayers of the afflicted. Verse 13 says he's going to take action. He's going to arise and he will appear in his glory. Verse 13 also tells us that he will have compassion and he will be gracious. And verse 28 says that he will build up Zion and establish his people. And there will come a day, verse 22, when all peoples will be gathered, all nations will fear his name and reverence his glory, verse 15, and all will serve the Lord, verse 22. The psalmist has, has this vision of divine intervention on behalf of an oppressed people and an, an oppressed city. And this vision will culminate in a restoration of that people and that city. And that city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become a focal point of worship and praise and service of the one true and living God. In a very broad sense, if you will, the psalmist has a vision of a world set right. The Lord will rescue from the pit, the Lord will bless, and the Lord will be reverenced and worshipped. This is the Lord's promise. So we've seen the psalmist's pit and the Lord's promise. And that brings us to the third motif, which is the Lord's power. This motif flashes out briefly in verse 12 and is expanded in verses 20, the second part of verse 24 through verse 27. The, psalmist, the psalm declares the Lord's power by describing three characteristics of the Lord's nature, three aspects of who God is at the core of his existence. According to the psalmist, the Lord's power is evident in the fact that he is the creator. The Lord's power is evident in the fact that he is eternal. And the Lord's power is evident in the fact that he is unchanging. He's immutable. He's the creator. He's eternal. And he's immutable. So first, the Lord's power is evident in the fact that he is the creator. Verse 25 declares that God made the heavens and he established the earth. The more science learns about the multiplicity of planets and stars and galaxies that populate this universe, and the more we uncover about the complexity and intricacy and symmetry and beauty of its microscopic and subatomic components, the more cause we have to be awed by the truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Another psalm, Psalm 33, tells us that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There is no power like this power. Who can speak a universe into being? Who can make everything out of nothing? This power, beyond all imagination, belongs to God and God alone. The Lord is creator. The Lord is also eternal. He abides forever, verse 12 says us, that tells us. He will endure for all man's generations, verse 12 and verse 24. And he will endure long after the heavens and earth have worn out, verse 26. 
his existence simply will not ever come to an end. What a contrast this is with what the psalmist has expressed from the pit. He said that his days have been consumed in smoke and his days are like a lengthened shadow, that he's withering away like grass. For the psalmist, the sun is going down, the time is short, the end is near. But for God, there is no end. He was there before there was a sun. He will be there long after the sun and every other star in the heavens has burned out. But God is the creator, God is eternal. Or in other words, as the Lord himself tells us, both in Isaiah and in Revelation, I am the first and I am the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if that were not enough, we are also reminded that the Lord is immutable. The psalmist says it in four simple words in verse 27. You are the same. You are the same. The earth and the heavens will wear out like an old shirt. They will be changed. But you, God, you never change. You are the same. God is creator. God is eternal. God is immutable. Why are these characteristics of God's nature, these evidences of his power, integral to the context of this psalm? Let's follow the flow of these motifs. The psalmist is crying out for rescue from the pit of distress. Then he's confidently asserting that the Lord has promised the rescue. Upon what is his confidence founded? It's founded upon the power of God, upon the eternal, immutable creator, God. Surely the creator of the heavens and earth, verse 25, can bring life to the dead, verse 20. Surely the eternal God, whose years will not come to an end, verse 27, has the antidote for the ephemerality of man who, like the grass of the field, is here today and withered away tomorrow, verses 4 and 11. And surely the one who does not change, the immutable God, verse 27, can be relied upon to keep his promise at the appointed time, verse 13, and to have regard for the prayer of the destitute, verse 17. The changing, eternal, creator God has the power. He has the ability. He has the presence. He is there and he is faithful. He will not change his mind. He will keep his promises. As God told the prophet Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the reason that the psalmist is crying out to the Lord from the pit. This is the reason the psalmist is recalling the Lord's promise. It's because he knows the Lord is powerful. This is the Lord's power. So what we've done, take a breather here, we've really scoped out the psalm's landscape. We have a pretty solid idea of what it says. Now it's time to tackle what it means. We need to interpret the text that is before us. Maybe you've already been doing that in your head. But we want to be careful how we handle, handle the word. So to interpret the text, I want to look at it from three different perspectives. I'm going to call those three perspectives the past, the present, and the prophetic. The first perspective that we can take on this psalm is to view it as something from the past, which obviously it is. It was written a long time ago, but how long ago? And who wrote it? Can we, put our, can we know? Can we put our feet in the shoes of the author and try to understand what he intended? Turns out this is a bit of a challenge for Psalm 102 because this psalm, unlike many psalms, does not identify the author and it doesn't make any direct reference to the occasion of its writing. 
Nevertheless, there are some very solid things that we can say, we can glean from the text. First, we can observe that the suffering, that is the pit, is decidedly personal. However, the promise, the rescue, is just as decidedly a corporate thing, a group thing. Did you notice that as we went through the imagery of the pit in verses 1 through 11, that it was all very much phrased in the first person singular, more grammar. It says, my cry, right? My distress. Incline your ear to me. I call. Answer me quickly. My days, my bones, my heart. I forget to eat. I lay awake. I could go on. You've cast me away. It's just one person. But then in verse 13, when the focus shifts to the promise, the focus also shifts to the plural, almost as if there's no answer to that singular person. The benefits of the promise don't come to a singular person. They come to a group of people. The rescue is promised not to the speaker, not to the one who's crying out in distress, but to a whole city, the city of Zion, to a whole group of destitute people. So the Lord has not despised their prayer in verse 17, plural. And the promise comes to a whole generation to come, a people yet to be created, verse 18, and to those, plural, who were doomed to death, verse 20. And the psalm, of, psalm sorry, closes out with a prophecy that the children, plural, will continue and their descendants, plural, will be established, verse 28. So what we have here is the testimony of a singular man in anguish in the pit, but the answer to his cry for help is found in a promise that the prayers of the many will be heard, that a whole city will be built, that a whole generation will praise the Lord. Now this could describe a number of prophets in Scripture, including psalm writers like Moses and David. But one prophet who epitomizes this role of lamenting in the pit while preaching the promise of a future to a nation is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was God's spokesman to Judah for 40 years plus. It was during a time when the people were taken in stages to captivity in Babylon, if you're familiar with the story. Jerusalem was plundered, ultimately besieged and destroyed, and the temple, the place where God manifested his presence in Israel and the only place where atonement for sin could be made, that temple was destroyed. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because much of his message consisted of lamenting over the current and future doom and destruction of his nation. And that context would serve as an excellent framing for this psalm. But there are a number of other factors that point to Jeremiah as the author. The reference to God's servants finding pleasure in Zion's stones and feeling pity for its dust in verse 14. I don't know if you caught that. It's understood by commentators to be a reference to the Babylonian captivity. Uh, according to rabbinic tradition, in fact, when the exiles left Jerusalem, they so loved Jerusalem's stones and earth that they carried with them some of the stones in the earth to build a synagogue for themselves there in captivity in Babylon. And there are some other clues. Jeremiah prophesied that God would make Jerusalem and its kings and the people who forsook him a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them, and a curse to all nations of the earth. Those are uh, quotations from Jeremiah, his, his book, uh, chapter 24, chapter 26, chapter 29, that God would make Jerusalem a curse among the nations. We hear an echo of that, right, in Psalm 102, 8, 
where the author personalizes that idea. They have used my name as a curse. Also, Jeremiah famously suffered greatly during his ministry. He was considered a traitor for prophesying that Judah and Jerusalem would, would fall. He was beaten, he was imprisoned, and in fact, he was lowered down into a literal pit. It was an empty cistern where he sank into the muck and mire at the bottom. He certainly had cause to write a psalm of one afflicted when he is afflicted and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Another very important piece for us to consider is that the ultimate reason, what, what is the ultimate reason behind all of this suffering? In the case of Jeremiah, the immediate cause of his suffering was the affliction of his people. But did you catch what it said in verse 10 of Psalm 102, where it says, because of your indignation, and he's speaking to the Lord, because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. This is a powerful image that we shouldn't miss. It's an image of a man who's lifted up a clay pot high so that he can smash it down to the ground with force and shatter it, throw it away. The man in the image is God, and the clay pot is the psalmist. And this is the ultimate reason the psalmist gives for his affliction. I can prove that to you if you scan through the psalm. Start in verse 1, trace it all the way through. What you'll see is it says the psalmist is afflicted, he's scorched, he's withering away, he's groaning, he's wasting away, he's lonely, he's, got a, he's, he's a curse on the lips of his adversaries, he's eating ashes, he's drinking tears, and then you get to verse 10. And there it says, because. All these things happen because of God's indignation and wrath. Because God has lifted him up and thrown him away. Here's the important point. The psalmist is crying out for help to the one who appears to be the ultimate cause of his affliction. How can this be? Well, consider the cause of Jeremiah's suffering that we know from history. We can trace that back to its roots as well. Jeremiah's suffering because of the suffering of his people and because of the imminent destruction of his homeland and its capital city. But why are the people suffering and why is Jerusalem about to be destroyed? Jeremiah didn't mince any words when it came to this topic. Jerusalem would fall, the people would be slaughtered and taken captive, and the king handed over to Babylon. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their sin. Jeremiah 7 uh, gives quite a laundry list of their sin. They were unjust. They oppressed orphans and widows. They were murderers, thieves, adulterers, liars. But above all, they were idolaters. They worshipped Baal and they worshipped other gods. They made cakes for the queen of heaven, it says. They set up idols to other gods in God's temple. They built altars on hilltops. And they offered, also offered their children as burnt offerings to false gods. It was really bad. And it's because of this that the wrath of God came on Jerusalem. Jeremiah 21 says this, and this is God speaking. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and with a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they will die of great pestilence. And God also declared of Judah and Jeremiah, I will cast you out of my sight. So we see here in Jeremiah the same language in Psalm as that's used in Psalm 102. We see wrath of God, the indignation of God, the casting away 
Jeremiah didn't mince words and neither does Psalm 102. But not all was doom and gloom with Jeremiah. Jeremiah also prophesied of an appointed time. A verse familiar to many here, maybe, is Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Didn't finish it. <laughs> I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You may know the verse, but did you know that these plans for a future and a hope are linked to a very particular event in Scripture. The verse right before that, Jeremiah 29.10, says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back, to bring you back to this place. So we see here, as in the days of uh, the promise to Abram that was fulfilled in Moses' time, we see here that the Lord's plans involved an appointed time. In this case, it was 70 years from the beginning of the captivity when the Lord would then come and restore Israel. And this is echoed, as we've noted already in Psalm 102, verse 13, that he will arise and have compassion for the appointed time has come. Back in Jeremiah 29, it's interesting to note the, the, the verses that follow that promise uh, for a future and a hope. In verse 11, the following verses, verses 12 through 14, go on to say, At that time you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I set, sent you into exile. You will call upon me. Pray to me and I will listen. That sounds a lot, lot like Psalm 102, verse 17. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute. And you will seek me and find me. I will restore your fortunes and gather you and bring you back. It sounds a lot like Psalm 102:16. The Lord has built Zion. In verse 22, the peoples are gathered together. And verse 21, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion. There's just a lot of connections between Jeremiah's life and his ministry and the message of this psalm, Psalm 102. Okay, so a lot of kind of academic facts there. What can we take away from this? Seen from this perspective, we can understand the psalm as being the cry of Jeremiah from the pit. He's mourning, not primarily for himself, but for the city of Jerusalem, for his nation, Judah, and for its people. He's suffering because his people are suffering. He's identified himself with his people. His life is linked to theirs. His anguish has become his. The reason for his affliction and for the affliction of Jerusalem and for all Israel is that God's righteous anger and wrath has come upon them. And the reason that the wrath of God has come is because of their disobedience. Most notably, they're having forsaken the true and living God to worship idols. But Jeremiah knows the promises of God. He knows that the appointed time will come and that the Lord will rescue and restore his people. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The, temp the temple will be rebuilt. And the people from all over the world will come to worship the Lord again at his temple. And the amazing thing is that looking back from our vantage point in history, we can see that indeed the Lord was faithful to his promises. The Lord did demonstrate his power to rescue right on schedule, beginning 70 years after the Babylonian captivity started. 
The temple was rebuilt. You may know the names under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Worship and teaching and the law were restored under Ezra and the city walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah. And we can read all about that in Scripture. Looking at the ministry of Jeremiah and the fulfillment of his prophecies, we see these three motifs then, pit, promise, and power. The pit was Jeremiah's suffering because of the wrath of God poured out on his people for their idolatry. The promise was the promise of God to restore his people to their land and to a right relationship with him. And the power was demonstrated by God's being faithful to that promise. He restored his people graciously, miraculously, and right on schedule. So that's the first perspective that we can take on this psalm, looking at it from the past or the historical perspective. There's a second perspective that we can take, a second level of meaning that we can derive from this psalm. And again, many of you probably already starting to fill in some of these ideas. It's a level of meaning that comes a lot closer to home than something that happened um, 500 years before Christ. We can look and see what this psalm has to say to us today how it applies to the present. What really started to clue me in to this was the imagery of the pit, the crying, the thought of God hiding his face, the smoke, the scorching of bones, the withering of grass, the groaning, the having been cast away because of the indignation of the wrath of God. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Like the burning up of the tares that have been separated from the wheat. In other words, it sounds like the condemnation of God. It sounds like hell. In this understanding, the speaker then becomes not Jeremiah, weeping over the plight of his people, but it becomes the sinner weeping over his plight and that of all sinners like him. The speaker becomes you and me, crying out for deliverance from the condemnation of God. Now, this doesn't take away at all from the idea that Jeremiah wrote this psalm or that that all the events that we talked about from the historical perspective actually happened. But rather, we understand that these historical events are shadows and types of a deeper spiritual truth. And the deeper truth here is that because of sin, all mankind is in a pit. And that's not to say we're all literally in hell at this moment, but we are all sinners. And people today, like the people in in Judah at the time of Jeremiah, are all laboring under the consequences of sin, which have come as a result of God's wrath. And those who remain in sin are surely destined for hell. From this perspective, Judah and Jerusalem are representative of the whole world. Just as Judah is oppressed by the Babylonians, this world, as Paul says in Romans 8, is subjected to futility. All creation is subjected, uh, enslaved to corruption. The whole of creation, Paul says, groans and suffers. Even as Jeremiah groaned and suffered. And just as we trace Jeremiah's and the people's, people of Judah's suffering back to the wrath of God, so too Paul traces creation's suffering in Romans 8. He traces it back <clears throat> to, back to God as well. He says that it is God himself who subjected the creation to futility. That's Romans 8.20. And the wrath, and, and that wrath is the penalty due sinners for sin, Romans 3.23. But there are two kinds of sinners with two different takes on the pit they find themselves in. 
There are those who refuse to see the pit for what it is, who refuse to acknowledge their sin. They're having forsaken the true and living God. They're idolatry, who stubbornly continue in it unrepented, who justify themselves by thinking that somehow their sins are not as bad as all that and that their good deeds somehow make up for the evil that they've done. These are those who don't cry out to God from the pit. They don't look forward to a promise that will be accomplished only by the power of God. These are those who are storing up wrath for themselves, as Paul says, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. For the wrath of God will come, Paul writes in Colossians. Colossians 3.6, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. On the other hand, there are those who, like Jeremiah, recognize their sin, who realize the pit they're in for what it is, that is the righteous judgment of God for their sin. These are those who cry out to God even as Jeremiah cried out. These are those of whom Jesus spoke in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. These are those who put their trust in the promise of God and the power of God to accomplish his promise. And this really is the gospel that we are in the pit We are dead in our sins and we are hell bound. But God has promised to rescue us. And in a minute, we're going to see how this psalm points powerfully to the means of that rescue. But for now, the main idea is God has promised to rescue us and that rescue depends entirely upon his power. The promise of Psalm 102 originally made to Judah and partially fulfilled fulfilled in a rebuilt temple 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene is now fully realized in the church. So the appointed time came. God arose, had compassion, and was gracious, as it says in verse 13. And we now can understand that that means that Jesus came into the world. Jesus came at the appointed time to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom, to set free those who were doomed to death. Verse 20. So today, the church is Zion rebuilt. We who believe, we are, Ephesians tells us, we are the very house of God. We are the temple of God, it says in 1 Corinthians 3. We are that generation. We, the church, capital C, the global church, we are that generation yet to be created, verse 18, and we are praising the Lord. We are the nations who fear the name of the Lord. The peoples gather together to serve the Lord. Verse 22. So yes, Jeremiah's cry was answered and God's promise to, uh, to his people was fulfilled. As we said, when Zerubbabel built the temple, rebuilt the temple, that happened in 515 BC and when the walls were completed a bit later. But that fulfillment, the promise to Jeremiah, that fulfillment of that promise was not really complete. And I say that because you look at Psalm 102.6 and it speaks of God appearing in glory. Now, if you're familiar with the history of the temple, the scriptures tell 
how the glory of God filled the first temple. That was Solomon's temple. That was the one the Babylonians destroyed. But when Zerubbabel rebuilt it, there was no such record of God's glory filling that second temple. That is to say, there was no such record of God visiting the temple until Jesus came. Jesus, God in the flesh, the one whom John says we beheld his glory, Jesus, literally, the glory of God, walked into the temple courts, that second temple. Jesus was God's glory coming to the temple, and he was the fulfillment of that promise in Psalm 102, 16, that, that God would appear in glory. Ultimately, even that temple was destroyed. It gets better, right? Ultimately, not even that, that temple was destroyed, but not before the Spirit of God was sent in power to indwell his people, the church. So in the present day, we still have God's temple, the church, which is rescued, set free from death, and filled with his glory, that is the Holy Spirit, and we're praising his name. And this is an even fuller fulfillment, if you will, of the promise in Psalm 102, 16. But there's more, right? We await the coming of the glory of God yet again at the end of days, and that will be the final fulfillment of the promise, not on this old earth, and not in literal old Jerusalem, but in a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So, to sum up the present perspective, the pit is the condemnation of all men under God's wrath because of sin. The promise is the rescue. That's the good news of the gospel, that God heard our groaning in our fallen condition, sent his son Jesus, the radiance of his glory, to become flesh, to walk among us, and to die for us and rescue us. And the power has been and is continuing to be demonstrated by God's having called to himself a people, by God having built his church to praise him in this world and in the world to come. And finally, we can look at this psalm from a third perspective. Understanding this third perspective, I'm calling the prophetic perspective, <clears throat> takes a little bit of brain plasticity. So I know it comes at the end here and y'all may be a little, little weary. I'll try to hang with me here. We need a little brain plasticity. That's because so far we've been looking at this psalm as if there's only one party speaking. In that original perspective, the past, the speaker was the psalmist. Like we said, it was likely Jeremiah. In the application that we just made to the present present day, we can plug ourselves in as a group, as the speaker. But there's a layer of meaning to this psalm that is prophetic, that points directly to Jesus. And to see that perspective clearly, we have to recognize that there is not one party speaking in this psalm. There are actually two. And the reason I say that is because if you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and you, don't, don't turn to chapter 1 of Hebrews because I'm going to read it for you. I want you to look at Psalm 102. But if you, if you later on, you can go look at it for yourself and prove me right. Um, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and you'll see that this parallels verses 25 through 27 of um, the psalm that's in front of us. I'm going to read from Hebrews. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 10, starting in verse 10, it says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So I hope if you were following along Psalm 102, verses 25 and, and uh, through 27, it's the same thing, or essentially the same thing. Might be a slightly different translation. Um, <clears throat> but the, so the interesting thing is, if you do go to Hebrews 1, verse 8, it tells us that these verses are God the Father speaking to God the Son. God the Father speaking of God the Son. And that kind of puts a whole new twist on this psalm. Okay, say it again. The speaker in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1, which is, would be the speaker in verses 25 through 27 of Psalm 102, is God the Father. This is according to the writer of Hebrews. God the Father here is declaring that the Son is everything that the Lord Yahweh of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is. That is, not only is God the, God the Father the Creator, eternal and immutable, but what we're learning here from Hebrews is that Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus is as well. Jesus, God the Son, is the Creator, eternal and immutable. And that puts an entirely new perspective on Psalm 102. But it's one that makes, uh, and it makes so many things fall into place. It's impossible to resist this perspective. Of course, it's the biblical perspective because it's the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us that's how we should understand this psalm. We understand then in this prophetic framework that the speaker in, in, in verses 25 through 27 on and on through 28, that's also God the Father. God the Father addressing God the Son. I hope you're tracking with me. So given that, we can work our way backwards from verse 25. We can look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Now originally when we read through that, we, we were thinking there was one speaker. But now, now we're going to find that there are actually two. Because what the writer to the Hebrews has done with verse 25 through 27 leads us to split verse 24 in half. Because if verses 25 through 27 are the Father declaring the deity, the Son, then also is that second half of verse 24. Your years are throughout all generations. So this is God the Father speaking of God the Son. But that means that the first half of verse 24 is the Son speaking to the Father, where the Son is saying, do not take me away in the midst of my days. So in other words... As I said, there are two speakers in Psalm 102. There's God the Father and God the Son. And you think about that, where, where it says, I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. This is a prophetic picture of Gethsemane, where the Son was prayed to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And what's the Father's answer? The Gospels don't tell us. We only read that Jesus prayed, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what was the Father's will? Colossians 1.19 tells us it was the Father's good pleasure 
for all the fullness to dwell in him. So part of the Father's answer to the Son in Gethsemane is, as Hebrews 1 is telling us, what Psalm 102, 24b through 27 say, that the Father, in answer to the Son, declared the truth of the Son's deity. The Father is telling the Son, do not be distressed. I will take you away in the midst of your days, as it says in verse 24a. I will take you away in the midst of your days, but you are the eternal, immutable creator God. You will not stay in the grave. You will rise again. And of your kingdom, there will be no end. Like it says in verse 28 of Psalm 102, the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. So verse 24 of Psalm 102 says two things about Jesus that seem contradictory but are both true at the same time because he is God become flesh. In his flesh he was taken away in the midst of his, of his days but in his deity his years are throughout all generations. And in his deity of old he founded the heavens and the earth. We go on through Psalm 102. And, and they will perish but in his deity Jesus will endure. One day he will do away with the current corrupted creation. He will make all things new. And the children of his servants and their descendants will be established forever. So this is the pr prophetic perspective. We see that Jesus, the Son of God, is the power. And that the Father has declared him to be so. But we can keep working backward now through the psalm. He's not only the power, but Jesus is also the promise. And he also endured the pit. Jesus is the promise. If you remember, we looked at verses 19 and 20 and noted that Jeremiah looked forward to the rescue and return of Judah and Jerusalem in the fashion that God looked down on Israel as slaves in Egypt and rescued them. But both of these rescues were just shadows of the real rescue promised to come through Jesus. Understanding now how Psalm 102 points to Jesus, we can see that through the promise section, that the promise is Jesus. So for example, verse 13 says, you will arise for the appointed time has come. We already noted this, that Jesus is God arising at the appointed time to have compassion and bring grace. Verse 16 says, for the Lord has built up Zion. Jesus is the Lord who came to build his church, his people. Verse 16 says, he has appeared in glory. We also noted this already. Jesus is God's glory who has, appear, who has appeared and who will appear again at the consummation of the ages to bring a new heaven and a new earth and even a new Jerusalem. Verse 17, he has regarded the prayer of the destitute. Jesus is God's answer to the prayer of the destitute. And verse 20, to set free those doomed to death, Jesus has set free those who are doomed to death and hell. And as verses 15, 18, 21, and 22 envision that the nations will fear and serve the Lord, it is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow, the New Testament tells us, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the good news of the gospel for us did not come apart from bad news for Jesus as we continue to work ourselves back through the... Uh, sorry... The, the, to the pit part of the psalm. The gospel of Jesus did not come for us apart from bad news for Jesus. Good news did not come to us apart from bad news for Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus endured all the bad news. He endured the cross. He endured the wrath of God. Jesus endured the pit. As we said in this prophetic perspective, there are two speakers. The Father speaks to the Son, affirming his deity. But it is the Son who cries out from the pit of distress. We know his life on this earth was short. We know he was weakened in, his, in the way and his days were shortened, verse 23. Or his days were, as the psalm says in verse 11, his days were like a lengthened shadow. And do you remember verse 10? Because of your indignation and your wrath, you have lifted me up and cast me away. Jesus was literally lifted up on the cross and he was cast away into a grave. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God and the scorching smoke that we read about. The scorching and the smoke that we read about in verse 3. He was like grass withering, verses 4 and 11. And that reminds us that he endured the fire of the judgment of God. Verse 8, interestingly, says, Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. This so fittingly captures how Jesus was mocked. We read in, this, in the New Testament accounts that his names, his very names, King of the, King of the Jews, King of Israel and Son of God, they were all literally used to curse him. We read the story of how the soldiers crowned him with thorns, dressed him in scarlet. They gave him a scepter and they said, in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews. And the chief priests and the elders mocked him and said, He is King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And they also said, Let God rescue him now, for he said, I am the Son of God. They used his name to curse him. Verse 5, back to Psalm 102. Verse 5 says, Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. And verses 1 and 2 say, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Both of these verses paint a vivid picture of Jesus' physical suffering at his crucifixion and his cry for help from the cross. You remember he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's actually a quote from another psalm, Psalm 22, but we can hear echoes of it here. The reference to the pelican and the owls actually takes on some significance. If you look back in the Old Testament, you can see that both owls and pelicans are unclean animals. New Testament tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He was counted among the wicked in his death, and he was lifted up on the cross, lifted up like a lonely bird, an unclean bird on a housetop. This to me is really amazing. The story of the gospel is embedded so deeply into the fabric of this psalm. There's the pit, a man crying out, a man lifted up, a man whose name is used as a curse, a man suffering the wrath of God, a man suffering for the plight of his people. There's the promise that the appointed time will come, that all nations will worship and serve the Lord, that a people yet to be created will praise the Lord. And there's the power that this very man who's crying out, he is himself the eternal, immutable creator God. Jeremiah suffered on behalf of his people's suffering. But that was a mere shadow of Jesus whose suffering is credited by faith as removing the wrath due us and setting us free 
from being doomed to death. That's the prophetic layer, prophetic perspective. So in conclusion, I'm going to go back to how we opened up this morning. Is there sorrow in your heart this morning? Are you grieving? Are you carrying a burden, perhaps more than a few? Are you weary? Are you broken? Are you in distress? Have you reason to despair? As I say, this psalm was written for you, you, the generation to come. The question is, are you one of those gathered together to praise and serve the Lord? Perhaps you're not sure. Today could be the day that you can be sure. First, you need to recognize that you are in the pit that I've been talking about. That is to say, you need to agree that you are a sinner, an idolater, you're in captivity and under God's wrath. And you need to agree that there's nothing you of yourself can do to climb out of that pit. But the good news is that you can cry out to God and he will look down from his holy height and he will hear your groans. He has sent his son to take up your burden, to take your brokenness, to suffer the wrath of the pit for you. And I pray that his spirit is working in you even now, calling you to confess your sin, to confess your need for him, to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died for your sins and that God raised him to life as a validation of this good news and a demonstration of that power we've been talking about, that power to give new life, eternal life, and to rescue you from the pit. On the other hand, <clears throat> if, you re- if you recognize, oh, sorry, not on the other hand, still on the first hand. If you recognize your need for him to rescue you from the pit, or if you're not sure about all this and you have some questions, I invite you to please come and talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you. For those, on the other hand, who know and confess Jesus as Lord and have trusted already in him for salvation, this psalm is for you too. And there's much more that could be said, and I'm going to leave most of it unsaid. But I want to say two things. One, I know there's a lot of suffering out there, a lot of brokenness. We've all been through a lot. Sickness, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, broken relationships, a struggling church, list could be longer. This world is a pit of suffering and brokenness. You might even call it dungeon. And that's why I asked for the story of Paul and Silas in prison to be read this morning. Paul and Silas were in a literal dungeon, and what were they doing? They were praying, and they were singing hymns of praise to God, we heard. For all we know, they could have been praying and singing Psalm 102. It would certainly have been fitting. Do you think as they prayed, they weren't crying out, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you? Psalm 102.1, I'm sure they were. And what hymns of praise to God do you think they were singing? Why not a hymn like this? Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Pits come in all shapes and sizes. Dark and distressing as it must have been, the dungeon Paul and Silas were in was a little pit. I'd say it was a lowercase p pit. When we're in the little pit, we need to remember that we've all already been rescued from the big pit, the capital P pit, sin, 
the wrath of God and hell. And we need to remember who it is that rescued us, the eternal, the immutable creator God, the one who holds all things, and that includes us in his hands. Because he is the creator, he can save us. Because he does not change, he will save us. We have eternal life, and it's all because of the work that he has done, and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. And furthermore, he is sovereign over his creation. It's no surprise to him that we're in whatever pit we're in. He has it all under control. He has a plan and a purpose to work it all for our good and his glory. And the Lord's power to rescue really does run far deeper than the depths of our distress. That's why Paul and Silas could sing hymns of praise to God. And that's why we ought to sing hymns of praise to God. It's who we are, the spirit living in us, We are the people created to praise the Lord. And finally, two, we as the saved ones must have compassion for those who are in the capital P pit. Like Paul and Silas, even as we are praying for the Lord to deliver us from our own lowercase p pits, we ought to be conscious of those around us who need to be rescued from the capital P pit. As we pray for that earthquake to release us from our pit, We ought also to pray for earthquakes to shake those around us to realize the gravity of their condition and say, like the jailer did, what must I do to be saved? We all also ought to be praying that God would prepare our hearts to respond in grace, even to our own jailers, even to those who persecute us, that we would respond, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that was, uh, that was a lot. And uh, just pray that uh, what was said today would be meaningful, Lord. Pray that we would be reminded, as I've said, I know we all are, have difficulties that we're facing. Be reminded of how great a salvation that we have. What an assurance we have that you are in us, that you love us, that you have a plan and a purpose and a future and a hope even as you did for Judah and Jerusalem. What, what an assurance to know that even as you fulfilled your promises down through the ages, you promised to Abram, promised to Moses, promised to Jeremiah, promised to send the Messiah. Lord, you fulfilled and you've been faithful every single time. And so we are trusting in you, Lord, and your faithfulness and your unchangingness. We just thank you that that we can do that, that we can look into your word, that we can probe its depths and keep probing all the years of our lives to know you more and understand how great you are, how much you love us, and what a tremendous plan you have for us. We just give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.